All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Welcome back to season two, episode five of Professionally Embarrassing. Happy New Year to you all. Thank you so much for all the feedback that we had on our episode with Hannah Markham QC just before Christmas. It was a real privilege to have her here and we will certainly look into having another guest soon, although I'm not sure that anyone could really top her because I just thought she was so fab. This week we're back to our normal format. We'll be doing What Did You See on Bailey? We'll be doing some recommendations and of course, Tweet of the Week. So without further ado, I'm going to kick us off this week with a case that's been a little bit controversial on Twitter sphere and also generally in the family courts. So for those of you who have been listening regularly, you will recall an episode two of season two that Malvika covered a case about PD12J and the application of domestic violence allegations in interim decisions and interim contact decisions. And the case that she covered involved uh, a mother who had removed the children who are fairly young, all under the age of eight, from the south of England to the north of England, fled what she said was significant domestic violence to a refuge, and had then sought for the children to remain up there whilst proceedings were ongoing in relation to contact with their father. The father subsequently made an interim application and the judge at first instance ordered that the children return back to the south of England and in fact ordered temporary residence to the father. That decision was almost immediately appealed, having triggered a risk assessment by CAFCAS, and the appeal was successful. We now have the second instalment of that case, which is the fact finding. So the decisions that had been made up until this point had been made on the basis that the allegations made by the mother had not been proven yet one way or the other. They might have happened, they might not have happened. So initially it was a case about risk. We are now looking as to whether the allegations made by the mother are in fact true. Now the judgment for the fact finding is quite long, but it's well formatted in the sense that it takes you through each element of the case quite well. One of the um, interesting features of this case that again, you may recall from episode two, is that the father, one of the main allegations that the mother makes was that the father had withheld his HIV positive status from the mother. She said with the intention of being controlling and coercive towards her and making her fear him and making her beholden to him in terms of her medical health. He says, look, it was a horrible mistake. I did it because I knew the relationship would not move forward if mum knew about it and I didn't want her to know and I took my medication every day. My viral load was undetectable and I did not give her HIV. Come the fact finding, it's fairly clear that obviously after separation, the mother had been tested for HIV. Neither she nor the children, thankfully, were infected with HIV. But it was very clear that this had had a significant impact on her view of the relationship and the relationship of the father with the children. The mother clearly feels that this was an intentional 
safeguarding choice to put the children and the mother at risk by not telling her about the HIV status. And I must admit something like that is a huge deception and something that I would certainly find extremely horrifying after years of a relationship with someone who you have children with. The other allegations that the mother makes are a series of essentially controlling and coercive behaviour, including economic abuse, denying money and also giving money for sex acts and then denying money again and then hiding money in various bank accounts. She also made allegations of unreasonable physical chastisement of the children. And she made a number of allegations of rapes between 2013 and 2018. Thereafter, following separation, there were obviously no more, but she says there was a series of non-consensual sexual incidents throughout the relationship that led to ultimately her fleeing this relationship and leaving the father. Now, the judgment goes into some significant detail about the evidence that the court hears, and there's a lot of evidence about what parents told professionals at different times and what accounts they gave at different various stages, which I think is one of the key features of a fact-finding. Anyone who does this job will know that one of the key things that you need for a fact-finding is contemporaneous records be it from GP, social services, any professionals involved with the children, the school, any support services that the parents have accessed, anyone who can say this allegation was being made in exactly the same way to me as it was now that the parties are in court. And that obviously includes the police. So there's a lot of third party evidence in this case. There's letters from the GP, there's confirmation of support services accessed by the mother, there's information from the children's schools, there's ongoing contact following the appeal, there is contact between the children and the father. So there is also contact notes and there is a vast amount of witness evidence from both parties themselves as to the nature of the relationship and so on. The judge analyzes all of that evidence and in particular, he looks at the evidence given by the mother to the police to the GP and to the court. And there are a number of inconsistencies in that evidence, particularly in relation to the sexual abuse, the rape allegations. And in fact, what the mother says on a number of occasions is different to what she said to the police a year before and what she had said to her GP at the time. So there is a number of inconsistencies in the evidence. The judge also makes it very clear that this is a mother who found it exceedingly difficult to discuss this evidence. So a number of points during her giving evidence, she had to stop for long periods of time. She took a lot of breaks. I think she clearly found the whole episode extremely upsetting and without a doubt with good reason because she was discussing the most intimate details of her relationship with a man who she clearly had lost all trust in, in relation to the HIV non-disclosure. So the allegation of the HIV non-disclosure obviously was found. The father accepts that he did do that. He accepts he did not tell the mother about this until five or six years after they entered a relationship. And in fact, some 12, 15 years after he found out that he was HIV positive. He, however, completely denies all of the other allegations. So he says, I was never coercive and controlling. I certainly did not sexually assault the mother and I have not physically chastised the children. I'm not going to take you through in detail uphill and downdale all the things that the court go through, but there is a list at paragraph 73 which will give you an idea of how long the judgment is but at paragraph 73 the mother sets out what she says are some of the main incidents of what she considers to be controlling and coercive behavior and she says that it was things like the father had an if I want it I can have it attitude that he would occasionally introduce her to friends as the wife rather than by name that he did not ever give her any privacy and would enter the bathroom when she was using the bathroom. And that when they got into arguments, he would change the subject and minimize her feelings. And I think that list is given by the judge in this case 
to illustrate what I think is a key aspect of this kind of case and this, the problems with these kind of cases, which is that ultimately what the judge finds is that that in and of itself, that, that behaviour is not, he says, is not controlling and coercive behaviour. The, the father was not abusive to the mother in relation to controlling and coercive behaviour, but he accepts that the mother thinks that he was. So what he says is, look, the impact that this behaviour, which I find to be objectively, obviously not ideal, but reasonable in the circumstances of the way in which these parties lived, was not abusive, was not intended to be controlling and coercive or designed to belittle the mother. But her understanding of that behaviour means that that is how she now views him through the prism of her own anger. And obviously one of the main issues with that analysis by the judge is that it implies that there is a requirement of intent for controlling and coercive behaviour. And in fact, the judge sets out in paragraph 179 of the judgment, again, it's very long, that controlling and coercive behaviour is defined in practice direction 12J in terms of behaviour used, brackets coercive, or designed, brackets controlling, to harm a victim. In my view, to prove controlling or coercive behaviour rather than more widely defined domestic abuse does require an element of intent on the part of the perpetrator to bring about the harmful effects of their behaviour which is probably the most controversial paragraph of this whole judgment and is quite an interesting analysis by this judge because what he says is, look, there are a number of occasions where the father did do the things that mother accuses him of, for example, calling her the wife rather than calling her her name. But the view of the judge is that's not intended to be controlling, that's just him being lazy with language or whatever it might be. There's no intent here to be controlling, which obviously opens up a lot of issues around the nature of domestic abuse. And I can see what's quite interesting in this case is there's also allegations of, of sexual assault, of rape. And the judge sets out that obviously under criminal law, there would need to be a reasonable belief in consent in order for someone to avoid a finding of rape or a conviction of rape. In this case, he says, look, I simply don't believe that it happened the way that mother said it happened. And actually I believe that father did not do these things that mother says he did resulting in her being raped. But he also says in the criminal sense, even if he did, then there might be a reasonable belief that she was consenting to that. It's not entirely clear from the judgment which way he is finding these lack of findings. But he sets out that he doesn't think the rapes happened. He doesn't think the father was controlling and coercive. And he, and he doesn't buy the allegations of physical chastisement of the children, one of which was made up by the mother after giving evidence at the end. So she had finished her evidence. The judge asked her a number of questions at the end. And she then introduced a whole new allegation of physical chastisement, which the judge had noted had never appeared in her statements before. And in fact, the judge said, I, I simply thought that she was grasping at straws by that point and making things up. So he does set out that he finds the mother incredible in terms of a witness. And by that, I mean, lacking credibility, not unbelievable, but she, she lacked credibility and he was not minded to prefer her evidence over that of the father but he justifies that by saying because this father did not mean to cause this woman harm and to make her feel controlled and coerced and of course the difficulty with that is and I think again this is a central plank of domestic abuse especially in family law especially when we're talking about what is best for children and children's relationships with their parents that whilst one parent may genuinely believe that they were the victim of abuse the other parent may genuinely believe that that was never their intention and that they were not trying to undermine or abuse their partner when they took these steps to make this person feel that way 
And that's the impossibility of these kind of cases, because we're not looking at it from a criminal perspective of an absolute ultimate finding of yes or no. It's just, is it more likely than not? Did it happen in the way you say it happened? Nonetheless, the impact of that, the impact of being with someone for a long time who hid their HIV positive status from you, the impact of that anger, of that emotion, of that fallout, of then the losing of the family and the children leaving their father and so on, is also wrapped up in this person. But perhaps the impact of that behaviour, which was seemingly small at the time, has now become much more meaningful because of the anger and the betrayal and the post-fact emotions, which in a roundabout way is essentially what the judge says in this judgment, that this is a really difficult case, it's troubling, because I know that mum thinks that these things happened and that they were really bad. And actually, I don't think they were, and I don't think they did happen in the way she said they did. But I can see why she's so angry with this man and why she feels so betrayed by him, because he did do something horrible to her and completely broke her trust, especially as a parent, because he was putting their children at risk by not telling her that he was HIV positive in their house. So it's a really interesting judgment. As I say, it's very long. It's 181, sorry, 191 paragraphs long. So you certainly don't need to read all of it. But the analysis of the judge starts at paragraph 180. So there's only about 10 paragraphs of analysis and findings that might be worth reading, setting out why he has reached these conclusions. And I think setting out in maybe not the way that I would have done it, but setting out one of the difficulties of this kind of work, that the reason that we have fact findings, the reason that we do this is not because a family court is there to litigate every single argument between the parents over the last 10 years. That's not the purpose of family courts. And anyone who tells you, I want to use the family court to clear my name is misguided in that because that's not what it's for. It's about working out how the dynamic between these parents can be managed and whether there is a risk to the children by one of these parents. And that ultimately is what the judge finds not to be the case because these things didn't happen around the children and they did not have a significant impact on the children. So it's an interesting case. I think it's certainly going to trigger a lot of literature. and I don't doubt there'll be lots of articles written about it soon to come, but definitely worth a read. Any initial thoughts, Malika? Yeah, I first heard about this case from my colleague at the Transparency Project, Lucy Reed, who tweeted about it and she picked up on the very issue that you have raised about intent versus the impact on the person who is the purported victim of the abuse. It's a difficult one because I have revisited the PD12J definitions of coercive and controlling behaviour and what His Honour Judge Dancy says is quite right because what it does say is coercive behaviour means an act or a pattern of acts of assault threats, humiliation and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm, punish or frighten the victim. And it, it's a similar form of wording for controlling behaviour, except it says designed to make a person subordinate and or dependent. And obviously, words like used and designed do seem to suggest that intent is needed. But of course, we know anecdotally that abusers often don't know that what they're doing is abuse particularly when it's coercive and controlling behavior. If you hit someone, you're physically abusive towards someone or verbally abusive to someone, you know that that's wrong. But coercive and controlling behavior is a more slippery concept to grasp. So a court might find, for example, that continuously messaging someone on a night out asking them to check in where they are, when they're gonna be back against a wider pattern is controlling behavior. The perpetrator might say, well, 
that wasn't my intention at all. I was just making sure that they were safe. I was doing what any considerate partner would be doing. Because abusers may well have persuaded themselves of the rightness of their position and may well have never intended or designed a scheme by which they could make their victim subordinate. But that doesn't make the abuse any less real. And we see it all the time. We see all the time findings being made against people saying that they were abusive and they resist the findings and say, well, I, I simply don't accept that I was coercive or controlling. I simply don't accept that that behavior was abusive. And then what do we do in those circumstances then? Is that then not abuse because they hadn't meant it? So it is a really tricky one. I mean, more broadly, I think it's an interesting judgment just because it gives people more of an insight into how the family courts operate in fact finds because it's a really difficult job being a judge in a fact find. The nature of domestic abuse is that so much of it happens behind closed doors. And so the assessment of the parties and witness evidence is so important. And there are factors that the court takes into account that are somewhat difficult to assess. They're not sort of tangible factors. They're things like body language and how that person presents and does this have a ring of truth about it, which might seem like an imperfect science, but it, it is what it is. It's the best that the family court can do um, to arrive at the conclusions that it needs to arrive at. Yeah, and I think the difficulty is just picking up on what you said, which I think is a really good point about the nature of what behaviour is acceptable and what behaviour is not acceptable. We're talking about relationships, which is a very personal thing. So I'm sure there are things that my friends or my whatever people that I know would accept in a relationship that I wouldn't and there are things that I would accept that they wouldn't and that doesn't necessarily mean that either of those behaviors are inherently abusive or wrong it's just how they are impacted on the person who's who's receiving them for example I do think that texting people thousands and thousands of times on a night out is fundamentally very wrong and weird and invasive but we're not quite at the stage and perhaps we should not be of having giving courts a list of behaviors that we say are objectively, this is what is bad. And then everything else outside of that is fine. The difficulty with these kind of judgments is it becomes very nuanced because we're saying, look, the behaviors themselves are objectively fine. I accept that the way they've been received by this person, however, is negative. And that's a very difficult line to draw, especially at a judicial level. So I'm interested to see whether this will really go any further. It's obviously a circuit judge decision. I did think I mentioned that before, apologies. It's a circuit judge decision um, from Bournemouth. It's obviously not going to be binding on higher courts. It certainly doesn't override all of the cases that we're talking about domestic abuse last year, particularly controlling coercive behaviour. But it's an interesting interpretation. And I think it does pull at some interesting threads in relation to the thorny issues of, of domestic abuse. What have you got for us this week? Right. The case I'm analysing this week is the fascinating, highly important judgment that came out of the Court of Appeal just before Christmas of Griffiths and Tickle, which dominated the headlines just around, around beginning of December. Andrew Griffiths, some of our listeners may know, is a former MP. You might remember him from a pretty grim sexting scandal in 2018 when the Sunday Mirror reported that he had sent thousands of sexually explicit, violent texts to two female constituents. He ended up resigning from his ministerial post at the time. He was married to Kate Griffiths MP, who actually succeeded him as the MP for Burton. So she's an acting MP. He made an application to spend time with their child, which was opposed by Kate Griffiths. 
And as part of those proceedings, there was a fact-finding hearing held and the judge made findings of domestic abuse against him. In summary, those findings included that Andrew Griffiths had been verbally and physically abusive to Kate Griffiths when drunk, that he undermined her self-esteem in many ways, that he insisted on sex acts that she found unpleasant, and he raped her by penetrating her when she was asleep. The judge accepted Kate Griffiths's evidence that when she complained of his behaviour, he told her that she wouldn't be believed as he was an MP. Pause a minute just to remind our listeners that, of course, in the family court, the standard of proof is on the balance of probabilities, which is a lower standard of proof than in the criminal courts, which is beyond reasonable doubt. So those findings have been made on the balance of probabilities. Several months later, two reporters, Louise Tickle, my colleague at the Transparency Project, and Brian Farmer applied for an order authorising publication. Andrew Griffiths didn't oppose publication in and of itself, but he opposed the inclusion of anything in the published version that could identify him, Kate Griffiths, or the child. And his case was that the restrictions on publication were necessary to protect the child. Mrs. Justice Leaven in the High Court granted Louise and Brian's applications and crucially the publication of the name of the parents. The judgment wouldn't identify, however, the child by name, sex or date of birth. And there were certain redacted parts of the judgment which couldn't be published. But I think we have to accept and, and those seeking and supporting publication had to accept that it would be pretty easy to jigsaw identify this child if you know who their parents are. Andrew Griffiths appealed and the Court of Appeal dismissed his appeal, upholding Miss Justice Leaven's ruling. There is tons and tons and tons in this judgment to dive into and skeleton arguments unusually have also been published from the case, which tell us a bit more about the arguments that were advanced by the various parties. I would urge our listeners to have a read of those skeletons because the judgment obviously doesn't set out all the meat on the bones of the party's arguments. Now, for family lawyers, it's pretty astonishing for us to be reading a case where the parents have been named. The family court protects the privacy of families fiercely, to the point that it is accused of justice behind a cloak of secrecy. So I think it's very important to say at the outset, and I will keep reiterating this during my analysis, that this case is very specific to its particular circumstances. Andrew Griffith sought to advance two grounds of appeal before the Court of Appeal, for the purposes of this episode, I'm not going to go into the first ground where he effectively tried to argue a point before the Court of Appeal that Mrs. Justice Leaven's interpretation of Section 97 of the Children Act is wrong. I'm paraphrasing, but Section 97 effectively prohibits publication of any material which is intended or likely to identify a child who's involved in family proceedings or any address or school. However, if satisfied that the welfare of the child requires it, the court may dispense with all of that. So he was effectively saying that the High Court's interpretation of that provision was wrong. He wasn't allowed permission to rely on that ground, effectively as it was a new point, and he had in fact conceded it in the lower tribunal and agreed that the approach taken by Mrs Justice Leaven was correct. So it would have meant having another hearing, which the Court of Appeal thought was unfair to the other parties. So I'm not going to go into it because they didn't entertain it. It's still an interesting legal point, And I would suggest that you read Lucy Reed's blog. She acted for Louise Tickle in the appeal and has written a summary of the case for the Transparency Project called Griffiths and Tickle, A Lawyer's View. And she explores that element a little bit if you're interested in the construction and interpretation of Section 97 and why the High Court didn't allow Andrew Griffiths to rely on that argument. 
Eloise Marriott from My Chambers has also done a great explainer on the whole case, which I'll put in the show notes. So I'm going to focus on the second ground of appeal, which he was allowed to rely upon. And that was that the analysis that was conducted by Mrs. Justice Levin, called the RE-S analysis, was legally flawed. So what is a RE-S analysis? When the court is faced with an application like this, it has to balance the right to private and family life under Article 8 against freedom of expression under Article 10. This is not an application that is determined by the paramountcy principle, that is that the child's welfare is the court's paramount consideration, which is set out in Section 1 of the Children Act. The child's welfare is a primary consideration when considering the application, but it's not the paramount consideration. And the authority for that comes from a 2011 case called ZH, brackets Tanzania, and Secretary of State for the Home Department. The case that sets out the principles to consider in an application such as this is called RE-S, and it's from 2004. In that case, the mother was charged with the murder of one of the children. S was the brother of the deceased child. The guardian of S was concerned that reporting about the criminal trial would be detrimental to S's welfare and sought an order for the mother and the children to be anonymized in any reporting. The application was refused by the High Court and the appeals dismissed by the Court of Appeal and the House of Lords as it then was. In the House of Lords judgment in Re-S, Lord Stain advanced four propositions about how to deal with a conflict between Article 8 and Article 10. One, neither article has as such precedence over the other. So there's no one article that is automatically elevated in importance over the other. Secondly, where the values under the two articles are in conflict, an intense focus on the comparative importance of the specific rights being claimed in the individual case is necessary. Thirdly, the justifications for interfering with or restricting each right must be taken into account. Finally, the proportionality test must be applied to each. For convenience, I will call this the ultimate balancing test. So Andrew Griffiths was saying that Mrs. Justice Levin's analysis was legally flawed because her approach was weighted in favour of publication and against the interests of the child. Interestingly, he ran his case on the basis that he opposed publication because of the Article 8 rights of the child only, rather than engaging his own Article 8 rights. Louise Tickle argued three main aspects of the public interest, namely that there is public interest in transparency for decisions of this kind. Coercive control is not yet well understood, and this judgment is a model of how the court should approach allegations of this kind. Secondly, Andrew Griffiths was a politician and an MP when the behaviour that had been found by Her Honour Judge Willis Croft took place, so it was in the public interest for voters to know that he abused his elected position to threaten his wife. Third, he deceived the public about the state of his family life and his behaviour. So in an interview about the sexting scandal, he said that was an isolated incident that had flowed from abuse he had suffered as a child and it occurred within the context of a mental breakdown. But the fact find found that actually his sexting conduct went back to 2011. So effectively, Louise was saying there's an interest in correcting the public record. Kate Griffiths supported publication in the form that was proposed by the two journalists. And she said she was confident she could shield the child from any adverse effects of publication. She also said, this is really interesting and something that is explored in the skeleton argument for the intervener's rights of women, 
is that her right to freedom of expression and her right to share her experience as a rape and domestic abuse survivor tipped the balance in favor of publication. Rightly, she pointed out that if there hadn't been live family proceedings, she would have been able to freely talk about her experiences. Rights of women put this in the following way. They said that victims of domestic abuse have a right to, quote, informational self-determination, which in simpler terms is being able to choose what they want to share, the right to tell their own story. The Guardian initially opposed publication. I don't know if that was maybe just a knee-jerk response to, oh my goodness, publishing names. Of course, this is going to expose a child to media scrutiny. But then she changed her position as the proceedings progressed and felt that the child further down the line when they get older is going to be told the facts anyway and there'd need to be conversations with them about the circumstances of their parents' separation. So the Guardian concluded the publication would be a limited and proportionate interference with the child's privacy. So what did the Court of Appeal say about all of this? The Court of Appeal dismissed Mr Griffiths's criticisms of Mrs Justice Levin's reasoning. They noted that she had identified four factors in favour of publication under Article 10. One, the importance of open justice. Two, the father's role as an MP and a minister, giving rise to a strong public interest in publication of the findings. Three, the inconsistency between his comments to the media about the sexting and the findings of Her Honour Judge Williscroft, which gave rise to the Article 10 right to set the record straight. And finally, the public interest in a judgment being brought to the public's attention to show the working of the family court in a case where a powerful man is held to account for the abuse of his female partner. The judge was clearly influenced by the unusual fact that both the mother and the guardian also supported publication, and also that those who were supporting publication wanted to use the case as an example of good practice. The judge noted, and this is something we discussed in the last episode, that it's usually the cases where things go wrong that we hear about that are published. That leads to an erosion of public confidence in the family justice system, and so a case like this offers the opportunity to slightly redress that problem. The Court of Appeal noted that the Guardian's view was particularly important given that the Guardian's appointed to represent and to protect the child's rights. And the Court of Appeal made very clear that parental responsibility is not a trump card and the Guardian's assessment of the impact on the child's privacy rights is of considerable importance. In terms of the child's Article 8 rights, Mrs Justice Levin also noted how young the child is. We don't know the child's age. That's one of the details that wasn't published. If the child was older and on social media, she said that she would have been concerned, but the child had no access to social media. Comments at nursery would probably go over the head. Any media storm would pass pretty quickly. And she was confident that the child could be protected from the ramifications of publication. And the judge also considered the impact of publication on the child's relationship with Mr Griffiths. Mrs Justice Levin accepted that the findings would have an impact on contact, but she said that that was because of his behaviour, not because of publication. So the Court of Appeal reviewed everything that she had said at first instance and dismissed Andrew Griffiths' criticisms of the RIAS reasoning. They said that the argument that her decision was simply wrong was unsustainable. They said that what needs to be considered is the impact of publication on each specific case on its facts. So what we can take away from that is sweeping generalizations about the impact of publication aren't going to fly. If you're dealing with something of this sort, then what you need to take the court through is specifically how the two rights are engaged in the circumstances of that particular case.
and the Court of Appeal was satisfied that that was what Mrs. Justice Levin had done. The Court of Appeal felt that the four factors identified by her in favour of publication were all relevant and that she was entitled to rely upon them. And the Court of Appeal put the critical question in this way. Do the child's best interests make it necessary and proportionate to impose those restrictions on the Article 8 and 10 rights relied on by the applicants and the mother? And they respond, quote, on the unusual facts of this case, given the age of the children and all the other circumstances identified by the judge, the guardian's expert assessment was that the answer was no. The judge agreed, and so do we. I think the first thing I want to say about this is that we should be very cautious about knee-jerk floodgates arguments that arise off the back of this judgment, that this is going to set a precedent which will really compromise the privacy of parties in family proceedings. This case is very specific to its unusual facts. And Lucy Reed, in her blog post for the Transparency Project that I've already mentioned, wrote, we always said the case rested on its unique facts and were clear that we did not think naming of parents in fact-finding judgments would be justifiable in most cases. And the Court of Appeal makes this clear at the outset, at paragraph 17 of its judgment, that the elements of this case are particularly unusual. And they say at that paragraph, the decisions of this kind are inevitably case specific. And the critical factors they flag up are the father's decision not to invoke any Article 8 rights of his own, but to rely exclusively on the rights of the child, the age of the child, the guardian's professional assessment, the mother's support for publication, and the extent and nature of the information about Mr. Griffiths was already in the public domain. The Court of Appeal concluded, we do not think it can fairly be argued that Mrs. Justice Levin's conclusion in the unusual circumstances of this case was wrong. On the contrary, we consider that she was clearly right. What do you think, Maddie? Right decision? 100%. I'm obsessed with this judgment. I think it's fab. I think you're completely right that it was a perfect storm. That If this was ever going to happen, it was going to happen with this case because he was an MP who had already lied to the public, who had already attempted to paint himself in a certain way in the minds of the public, you don't get much more public interest than a serving member of the House of Commons doing something like this and being able to hide it. I think that's so important. I think it's also very indicative of where we are at the moment with domestic abuse and where we are about the impact of this on children, because I don't think this decision would have been made even two or three years ago, but we've had these watershed judgments over the last 18 months to two years that have led to a place of it being so important for the victims of domestic abuse, men and women and children, to speak to other people about this and, and speak about how common it is and speak about how much of a problem it is. And I think this particular judgment as well, the thing that I really struck me about it is that I think some people think that domestic abuse only happens to people in poverty or to people from other cultures or to people who aren't like them. And actually this is a very privileged, very public facing family who suffered exactly the same kind of horrible treatment that most of our clients that we see every day have too. And I think that's so important. You know, domestic abuse is not discriminatory. It affects everyone and it affects the whole of society if we always keep a lid on it. So yeah, I love it. I think it's so good. I'm, I'm really pleased for all parties involved. I think it was a very interesting decision of Mr. Griffiths not to rely on his own Article 8 and 10 rights, because I think there is perhaps an argument on the flip side that because he's a public figure, there's more of an argument against publication. But I know he didn't run that argument. So I don't know how that would have gone and it may happen again in the future. But yeah, I think it's definitely worth a read. And I think it's a really, really good example of how much work the Transparency Project have done, how much work the president has done. 
how much work we are all trying to do in the family courts to make these kind of things less common because you can't hide from them anymore. Yeah, and it brings us quite neatly to book podcast talk recommendations because one of my podcast recommendations is Louise Tickle and Tortoise's slow newscast podcast episode titled A Finding of Rape, which looks at the Griffiths decision and importantly, Kate Griffiths is interviewed in the episode. And it's really powerful hearing from her directly and the little things that Andrew Griffiths did to her over time to erode her confidence and to make her a shadow of herself. And I would just reiterate what you said about this perhaps not being the typical family we would think featured domestic abuse. This might not be the typical victim of domestic abuse. This woman is now an MP, someone who has objectively significant power, but in a sense that makes it even more difficult for them to talk about what they've experienced for fear of not being believed because people will just say, well, why didn't you leave? Why were you not able to protect yourself? Why did you stay in the relationship that long? And of course it's it's far more nuanced than that. So I would really urge listeners to listen to that podcast. You do need a subscription, I believe, to Tortoise to be able to listen to it, but it is well worth the listen. In terms of my other recommendations, uh, this is not a family law podcast, but it is absolutely gripping, Maddie. Have you heard Sweet Bobby? Of course. Who hasn't? I listened to all the episodes in one lengthy binge on the drive down to Brighton to my boyfriend's for Christmas. And I was open mouthed on the motorway at the big reveal, which I will not give away. For anyone who hasn't heard about Sweet Bobby, and I don't know if you've been living under a rock, it is about a woman who over many, many years forms an online relationship with someone who turns out not to be who they say they are. That's not a spoiler because you know from the beginning that that is what's going to be the outcome. She tells us about how the catfish, Bobby, worms his way into her life, isolating her, gaslighting her, making her miserable. And when the catfish is revealed, she tells us about the difficulties she had in getting the police to take the whole episode seriously. She tells us about how she became embroiled in this relationship. And the final episode is really interesting Q&A about how is it that she fell for this over so many years? How is it that she fell in love with someone that she never met in real life? How was this deception actually carried out? And she tells us about the incredible sophistication of the whole deception. She tells us why she wants justice. And for our purposes, it's interesting because the podcast explores what, if any, legal remedies are available to her and whether the behavior she was subjected to amounts to the criminal offence of coercive and controlling behaviour, which I will not go into because we are not criminal lawyers and the criminal offence of coercive and controlling behaviour is very specific. But have a listen to that podcast. It is so good and fully deserves all the attention that it has been getting. Finally, a new podcast I've discovered. It seems like all I've been doing over Christmas is listening to podcasts. That is all I've been doing over Christmas. A new podcast I've discovered by Nazir Afsal and Mark Williams-Thomas. You might know Nazir Afsal. He used to be the Chief Crown Prosecutor for Northwest England. And during his time as the Chief Crown Prosecutor, he initiated the prosecutions against the Rochdale sex trafficking gang, which you may have seen dramatised in the BBC's Three Girls. Mark Williams-Thomas is a former police officer turned journalist who you also might know from an ITV documentary 
from about 10 years ago called Exposure, The Other Side of Jimmy Savile, which investigated the allegations of sex abuse against Jimmy Savile. The podcast is actually quite similar to this one in that it's two people having a chat about things that relate to the work they do and have done and what they think about it in a fairly informal way. So they have episodes on Sarah Everard, they have episodes on um, Arthur Labinjo Hughes, terrorism, lack of police action on COVID breaches, and they both bring their prosecutorial and policing experience to these issues in an accessible and passionate way. And they're really not shy to say what they really think, hence the name of the podcast, without fear or favour. So would definitely recommend that as well. What about you, Maddie? I'm afraid I'm doing a little bit of shameless self-promotion this week because uh, I have an article coming out in the Family Law Journal. And it should be out by the time this episode is out with a friend of mine called Mark Galtry, who is a barrister at Falcombe Chambers, about occupation orders and non-molestation orders. And weirdly, for a family law podcast, I don't think we've ever really gone into detail about occupation orders and non-molestation orders, which isn't unexpected because they're very rarely published and anyone working in the field will know that they're very rarely published. But Occupation orders is one of the great loves of my life. I think Section 33 of the Family Law Act 1996 is just excellent, excellent drafting. So much to learn from it. I think it's so well done. And there's a reason that occupation orders and non-molestation orders are straightforward. It's because they are drafted well and people understand them. And I'm just a big fan of them. And I think they go hand in hand with the importance and power and influence of the family court because we have powers over the property courts that they can do nothing about. So it's very exciting. Um, it's coming out with Mark. It looks at the, the interplay between family law and property law. Um, and I think it's a really interesting one, first of all, to look at how best to safeguard vulnerable victims who are living with abusers. And also just looking at how best to make the applications tactically, what decisions to make, when the right time to apply is, whether you should apply for a non-model or an occupation order, what the best thing to do as a property owner is and so on. And Mark looks at all of that as well. So I think it's going to be interesting and I, I would like it if people would read it. We worked quite hard on it and I think it's very interesting. And the second thing is very boring, nerdy alert to all family lawyers that there is a new financial remedies unit efficiency conduct guidance statement out that we will put in the show notes that I think everyone needs to read. It's actually quite an upheaval. There's lots and lots and lots of new guidance, including agreed asset schedules, agreed pre-issue questionnaires, post-pre-issue questionnaires, pre-FDA documents, additional case summary templates, and so on, all of which I know that Financial Remedies Unit are going to be hot on enforcing. So it's definitely worth having that in your back pocket and giving it a read if you've got some time, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. So worth a recommend. And while you're listening to all of Malika's podcasts, you can have a look at the new Financial Remedies Efficiency Conduct Statement. Yep, I've shared the details of Maddie's upcoming article on the professionally embarrassing Instagram, which if you don't follow, please do. It's at Prof Embarrassing, which is slightly different to our Twitter, which is at P Embarrassing. So tweet of the week. I struggle to find a tweet of the week because people haven't been posting very interesting tweets. So I need to make an appeal to legal Twitter to just be more interesting. But I have managed to find one and it's from friend of the podcast, Shelley Glacier Young at S Glacier Young. Ahem, Barrister tweets, version six of the BTAS sanctions guidance landed 1st of June and provides for new misconduct groups, one of which is social media. A non-exhaustive list of potentially sanctionable online behaviours includes making abusive remarks to and about others on social media. And she posts an extract of that with the tweet. I don't think I'm going to comment any further. Just to say that there has been some heat 
in Twitter exchanges in the last month and a half or so. And I just want to flag up that the profession is under a great deal of scrutiny, especially from those who wish to enter the profession. And the way we conduct ourselves is extremely important and is a reflection of the profession as a whole. We are not teenagers bickering on Facebook anymore. And it doesn't matter what we say, what we say does matter. So have a read of the use of social media and other communications guidance and prevent yourself from getting into any hot water in the future. Completely agree, would echo all of that and uh, we'll take it no further than that. My tweet of the week is from Louisa Whitney, at Louisa Whitney, who has tweeted with a quote from Lord Wolfson, who has set out that, unless there are safeguarding concerns, mediation should be the default option for those separating. Mediators have more tools than even the best judges can have, not a criticism of judges, he stressed. Hashtag family mediation week. So me and Malvika are recording this on the 17th of January, which is the beginning of family mediation week. Um, it's something that we're really, I think I can really see people pushing forward for in 2022 is non-court-based dispute resolution. And McFarlane made a speech only last week saying that the family courts need to be the last resort. They can no longer be the first port of call because we simply can't do it. And there are still cases in the family system we all know that don't necessarily need to be there for whatever reason. So I think we can all try and pull together this week and think about non-court dispute resolution tactics, then I think that's always good. And we as barristers are not doing ourselves out of work by saying that, because there's always a role for us to play in advising and in settling and in helping people get to where they need to go. So I'd certainly stress giving some thought to alternative dispute resolution this week. Yes, contrary to popular belief, family lawyers do not want you to end up in court paying good money, which could be better directed elsewhere. Court listings are incredibly crowded. It takes ages to get hearings. You do not want to end up embroiled in lengthy proceedings if you can avoid it. Mediation offers a setting where there is a lower temperature, where co-parenting is encouraged, where the discussions are often more productive than the inherently adversarial nature of litigation. So hopefully we can all learn a little bit more about the pros of mediation as this week progresses to completely endorse those comments. So that's that for this episode. We will come up with something interesting the next time. If you have any particular comments or requests, please do DM us on any of our social media accounts, but otherwise we'll see you next time. Thanks, bye.